So as we wait for people to come in to the room, I thought we'd just start um, going over the background, introducing ourselves, because most people attending will already know this information. So we can get going and people will join in their own time. This is the fourth and final COSINDI online webinar. We're really excited to be talking about gender, but not only gender in terms um, of equality and empowerment, which are concepts that most of us are familiar with. We're talking about gender from an intersectional perspective. And so we have um, Dr. Anissa Beta, Dr. Dina Afrianti and Bo Newham joining us today. I'll be moderating tonight's panel from Jaja Wurrung land. And I wanna pay respects to Aboriginal people past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. And I'm sure our panelists can introduce themselves and where they're speaking from tonight. We will be talking about gender advocacy, equality and empowerment from a range of intersectional perspectives, including disability, queer advocacy and decolonization. And if you have any questions about these terms, our panelists will define them before we begin. But if you have any um, questions and you're not quite sure what any of these terms mean, please just let us know in um, the comment session. I know myself, I've been working on gender and gender violence for four years now. And sometimes you take things for granted. Do you think I know what this means? And so if we're talking about something and you think, no, I'm not quite sure what that means, then please do ask because we want everyone to be included in the conversation. So before we begin, I'd like to introduce our amazing speakers, um, Dr. Dina Afrianti. Firstly, um, an absolutely trailblazing scholar, in my opinion, with respect to women's rights and disability in Indonesia and Muslim societies more broadly. Dina's a research fellow at La Trobe currently. She's also speaking tonight as the founder and the president of the Australia-Indonesia Disability Research and Advocacy Network, we'll call Adrian, for simplicity. Bo Newham is the co-founder of Queer Indonesia Archive, which is a community-focused and volunteer-run digital archiving project, which aims to collect, preserve, and celebrate material reflecting the lives and experiences of queer Indonesia. And Bo's worked in the LGBTIQ plus activism space in Indonesia for the last five years. So an extremely experienced and passionate advocate joining us tonight. And Dr. Nisa Beda is a lecturer in Cultural Studies at the School of Culture and Communication at the University of Melbourne. Her research interests are very um, broad and they include youth, media, decolonization, political subjectivity in Indonesia and broader Southeast Asia. And before coming to Melbourne, she was a postdoctoral fellow at the National University of Singapore. So now that we all know one another, we're going to jump into some questions and we're going to start by defining which intersectional perspectives we're speaking from tonight. Um, again, if you have any questions, let us know, but we'll start with Anissa. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and define for those who aren't familiar with the terms? what you mean when you're talking about gender and decolonization, particularly in terms of their intersectionality. Thanks so much, Rowan. Um, and 
before I begin, I would just like to acknowledge that I'm beaming to you right now from the land of the Wurundjeri people, uh, and I pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. So um, that's a very important question, and I think a question that I need to revisit often uh, to really actually understand what I'm doing. Um, so when I'm talking about gender and decolonization and in relation perhaps to the idea of intersectionality. I'm looking at gender as a way to uh, perform, well, not in, a, not in a performative sense, but sort of to repeat some acts of stylization of your body. That's of course a famous Judith Butlerian definition of gender. And uh, it's about repeating certain performances uh, to become a certain member of a gender. Usually it's the cisgender, right? So for me, in my research, I focus on uh, how young women uh, do acts and um, maybe modify their, behavior, their behaviors to become a woman or to imagine, to do ways uh, that they can think of themselves as part of this group uh, called young women or perempuan, perempuan muda in Indonesia. And I think it's really related to decolonization and the term of decolonization, I think, has been quite uh, popular these days, but I have to underline that it has very different meanings when we understand it from the settler colonial perspective, like in Australia or Canada or United States, because it's very important to point out that in these contexts, decolonization is not and should not ever be considered as a metaphor, right? So scholars like Iftak has highlighted the point that decolonization should never be a metaphor, but it should be about um, re um, returning the sovereignty to the First Nations, to the indigenous people. So uh, that's the one, one perspective of looking at decolonization. But when we talk about uh, post colonial states like Indonesia, the context that we're talking about, and many others in Asia, decolonization should really be about our attempt and ongoing process to, um, to rethink and work out our historical relation and social relation, the products of it, with our former colonizer, and it could take forms culturally, politically, economically, and in many other forms. And I think when we imagine colonizers, especially for Indonesians, we often think, oh, Belanda, dulu dijajah oleh Belanda. It seems like it's all in the past, but it's really also important to remember that the effects of colonization is still ongoing. And we also have different forms of neo-colonial thoughts or neo-imperialism, especially from the American um, influences so when we talk about um, gender and decolonization, and perhaps we can later talk about intersectionality, um, it, it's about how we are looking at young women, for instance, or women in general, and to understand what types of oppressions or different domains of oppressions that young women and women are located in. So these types of oppressions, be it race-based, ethnicity-based, class-based, disability, able bodies, and so on, could be informed by, you know, could, are actually products of colonization and colonizer logics or neo-imperialist logics. And I suppose it's an ongoing work that needs to be done to make that link 
between what has happened in the past and how the effects of colonization continues to influence the way we think about how we should be and what we should what we should be in the future and by we i'm talking about indonesians and young women specifically i'm on mute uh, thank you anisa i think something that's really interesting coming out of those definitions is how much of this is an ongoing process so decolonization is not historical it's always ongoing and it's something we need to reflect on particularly in the bilateral relationship between australia and indonesia and also gender is something that's not set but is also ongoing in terms of performing our gender and maybe dina can speak more on this but there's this distinction between sex and gender gender being performed how we act as women or men and how that relates to islam or religious notions of kodra so what can we change? What can we not change? How does society view us depending on how we behave and you know, the symbolism we adopt through our actions? So moving on to Dina, could you tell us a little bit more about your work and how you define gender um, and how this relates intersectionally with the concept of disability? Thanks, Winnie. Uh, I'd like to begin uh by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land of the Wurundjeri people. And I would like to pay respect to the elders uh, past and present. Uh, that's a very interesting uh, introductions provided by Anissa. And um, the way I use intersectionality in my work, uh, you know, I, I work on gender Islam and, and politics in Indonesia, but re most recently I've also developed my research around disability. And it is very interesting because um, as we, as some of you probably have uh, aware of uh, that when talking about disability, we cannot separate it from the how, how race, how religion, how gender, um, and how social class uh, uh, have its impact on the status and well-being of people with disabilities. It is not just in Indonesia, but everywhere else in the world, both in, in the global south and also in the global north. And, and some of them is because of how uh, the status of people with disability is affected by the policies. And, and, and if, if we all understand policies are made uh, as a result of the contestations of, you know, of many and various uh, factors at hand. And so when talking about uh, inclusion, when talking about advocating the rights of people with disabilities, uh, we've always looked at how social class, for example, and also how religion and cultural values uh, have its impact on how society perceive disabilities. And this is very important because uh, one of the major obstacles and one of the major issues that have challenged uh, people with disabilities in Indonesia is the perceptions around disabilities. And, and this, is, this, is also has, this also has something to do with the way the state, for example, introduced and uh, uh, created its policy towards people with disabilities uh, 
uh, during the new order, it's very much um, inspired and influenced by the medical model well, where disability is seen as, as, an, as an impairment and that, that impairment is the problem. And, and because it's a problem, it needs to be fixed. Uh, when, when this kind of notions that it needs to be fixed is there, then the society will always think you need to fix yourself first. And, and that, that, that created the perceptions that as a society, we, we don't have uh, or we, we are not contributing to the issues and challenges faced by people with disabilities. And, and so uh, in my advocacy and also in my research, we've always tried to look at how we address that first, because without addressing the way society perceives disability, then the, the, the way we can help improve the, the, the environment, because the problem is with the environment and that environment is a space where every single uh, 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 factors contribute to create that, that uh, barriers in the, in, in the environment. And so intersectionality really helps uh, uh, disability advocates and, and people like me who are the allies of disability advocates to work around changing social society attitudes. And, and like in gender, uh, we, we have Indonesia uh, is a country probably in the world with so many policies have been created to improve the status of women and also the same thing with the status of people with disabilities. But the, the problem has always been how gender norms have been the major obstacles for government, for, for policymakers and also policy implementers to make sure that this policy can benefit the targeted constituent, which is women. And the same thing with people with disabilities. That is the problem, the disability norms uh, that have been the major obstacles also for the government to implement the policies that, have, that they have been introduced uh, in the past 10 years. And so intersectionality uh, should help us understand it better and I think with participants uh, at this webinar, uh, you come from all different social class, all different, you know, you, you're the type of employment that you are working with. Uh, they are all contributing to how we can uh, make sure that as part of the society, we can uh, promote the rights of and fulfill the rights of people with disabilities. Thank you so much, Dina. I think a few things that are so important to reflect on are how we have internalized those norms and those stereotypes about disability or about gender and so on. And the relationship between not only government policy um, and history and how that informs our perceptions, but our relationship with ourself and our own thoughts and reflecting on our understandings and our biases and moving forward to be not only better advocates for these causes, but also better allies to causes that are not our own. So I think understanding how to be better allies is hopefully something we can get out of this because no one knows everything about everything. When we're talking about intersectionality, everyone has blind spots. And so it's it's amazing for us to come together and reflect on where we intersect and where we still have learning to do. And 
just moving on to Bo, something that Dina also touched on, which is really topical, is how history informs contemporary understandings. And I understand that QIA's work looks into the past in order not only to preserve knowledge, but also to learn and understand today's world. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work and how you define queerness in QIA's work and how that relates to other concepts intersectionally, such as gender or decolonization? Okay, there we go. Hello everyone, my name is Bo. Um, thank you, Winnie, and thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dina and Dr. Nisadis. Um, really enjoyed um, listening to those explanations. Um, I would first want to start by acknowledging that I'm on the, uh, on the land of the Bidigal people of the Eora Nation. So I am traveling at the moment. So it is very nice for me to be on, be a guest on a new land here in Sydney. And I want to pay respect to the traditional custodians of the land that I'm currently on and pay respects to elders, both past, present and emerging. I also want to send my respect to the indigenous peoples across the archipelago of Indonesia um, that QIA does the majority of its work on and give my solidarity to their ongoing struggle for land rights and autonomy. So to go back to your question, Winnie, um, QIA uses queer as a broad and inclusive umbrella term that indicates our interest in objects that reflect the experience of sexualities, genders, and gender expressions that are deemed non-normative by current dominances and heteronormative discourses in Indonesia. The, of course, this term doesn't adequately capture either the gender or sexual diversity that exists across Indonesia, nor the role that this diversity has played in the numerous cultures across the archipelago. Um, we hope that the archive supports further exploration and interrogation of the use of both queer and other terms under the LGBTIQ um, acronym as terminology for the Sogi SC communities within Indonesia and allow some insight into the creative and expansive use of language and identity markers that has occurred throughout the communities of Indonesia and throughout um, especially the last hundred years. In terms of intersectionality, the archive is committed to building a framework that emphasizes how notions of gender and sexuality are always connected to structures like capitalism, colonialism, imperialism, religion, race, heteropatriarchy, ability, and the nation state. The archive sees that it's these structures that frame who and what the who, the what, and the how of what is remembered, what is preserved, and what is celebrated in our, mem our memory institutions. Since this is a very new project, it started at the beginning of 2020, um, at the moment, in terms of collecting material, we are prioritizing what, it, what we have deemed vulnerable content. And we're especially focused on communities and histories that have been largely ignored by either memory institutions, such as libraries, museums, um, or academia and learning institutions such as universities. However, of course, this is a very difficult task and it often requires a lot of legwork by our volunteers to engage with community members and build up the trust and relationships needed um, for them to wanna to share their materials and their stories with a new institution such as a community archive. So 
beyond prioritizing the contributions of marginalized communities or communities that may not have been focused on by memory institutions, we also have a growing oral history project that's, that's aiming to take life histories of community members into the future. Um, within these interviews, we've highlighted the importance of emphasizing the interconnections of social issues when developing questions and topics to focus on. As we feel, we feel it's important to invite participants to share their wider experiences and acknowledge them as authorities, not only on their own identities and their own bodies, but also on the wider social and historical issues um, that have occurred over their lifetimes. Um, so often, especially on, in queer work, but uh, uh, especially in queer work and, and especially when talking to or engaging with um, non-cis participants, it's often they're very much only drawn upon to give their expertise and their knowledge and opinions on their own bodies and um, their sexualities rather than kind of seeing them as these fully fleshed um, people that have, you know, multifaceted and have been taken part in, in every aspect of the culture around them. So to go back to your original point in terms of history, of course, in our work, not only do we have to consider the identities and intersections that are occurring in our communities as we speak now, but as we are collecting materials that go back over the last hundred years, we often also have to consider different forms of identities, different uses of language and different um, kind of gender forms and political forms that may not necessarily have an easy flow or an easy connection to the way that current community members think, feel and organize around gender and sexuality today. So that's kind of an intersection that both has to happen in, in the contemporary, but also in thinking about how does, how do materials that speak to historical gender and sexuality forms interrelate with the communities that will be associated with them in the contemporary day and age. So it's a, a lot of our intersectionality work is about ensuring that we're both respecting communities um, that existed in the past, but also respecting and working with the communities that are interrelated with those identities in the, in the contemporary. Thank you so much, Bo. I can't believe that QIA was only founded this year because I've already heard so much about your work as an organization. You've achieved so much already. And I guess that goes to show, although there's long histories of advocacy um, either in the disability or women's movements or uh, queer communities, there is always space for room uh, and room for youth and young people to start new initiatives and contribute to these legacies. So that's super exciting. And I'm sure a lot of people here will be interested in, in looking up QIA and learning more about the project. I think your point about taking a structural point of view is so important because people don't, nothing exists in isolation. Everything is interconnected, which is at the core of this concept of intersectionality. But another thing is, who tells the narrative? 
And so when we're looking at history in particular, whether it's women or people with disability or queer communities, these perspectives are marginalized or silenced. And that's very well known. We don't have the documents. We don't have their stories most of the time because they didn't have the power, weren't in those positions of power to have their voices heard. And so I just think that the archiving project is particularly important uh, as we're moving through generations so we don't lose that knowledge and lose those perspectives. Speaking of communities that have been historically marginalized, I just wanted to ask you um, to elaborate a little bit on how your work specifically seeks to empower people. So specifically seeks to power groups or, or communities could you give an example from your work or your organization's work about how it aims to empower people? And what I mean by that is we're trying to give space uh, to people. We're trying to give them platforms and amplify their voices and perspectives. So when we talk about empowerment, what tangible kind of initiatives are you or your organization's working on at the moment? Maybe starting with Dina. Yeah, uh, I think, uh we must uh, all understand that at the very heart of intersectionality is oppression. And when we are talking about gender, people with disabilities and queer, it's I think the oppressions that comes from all different forms, uh, from policies, from structure, from society. And so when we are talking about uh, intersectionality, then we need to talk about the impact of discriminations. And, and this can only be experienced by women, by the queer and by people with disabilities and addressing that uh, oppressions and various forms of discriminations is by letting the voices and letting those experiences to be out there, to be expressed openly, to be heard and to be understood. And, and so that's why in, in our work, uh, uh, with IDRAN, for example, one of the key aim that we that we that we have is to make IDRAN to create IDRAN as a platform where the voices, the experience of people with disabilities can be can be out there. Uh, and and uh, I think in Indonesia, with as a result of uh, seclusion and also because disability has always been invisible they are not there in public so people don't understand about people with disabilities needs different needs people don't get to uh, don't get to try to try to fulfill what is the needs of people with disabilities and that's all because of that seclusion because they have never been out there in public space and so what we do in terms of advocating the rights of people with disabilities is to to, to work with people with disabilities and even and at IDRAN, I don't have disability, but uh, Indonesian chair of IDRAN is someone with lived experience. And also our, our, our researchers are mostly people with lived experience. And, and that's the idea is to give that platform and then for people with lived experience to be able to voice and to share their experience with the public and through our website, our social media, the idea is really to make that public space more robust 
And so the stories of how uh, parents uh, who have children with disabilities, people with disabilities, students with disabilities, uh, engage in, 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 in the community and the, the daily discriminations that they face uh, in their everyday life uh, can be documented uh, through stories, through, you know, you know, luckily now we have, you know, all the social media platform, Instagram and YouTube, and where we can record and document, uh, like what Bo said with the queer project thing, the same, uh, that's also the idea that we, we would like uh, Idran to, to be able to play and contribute in that space. And so hopefully then the more people talk about disability, the more people learn about the experiences that people with disability have to face in their daily lives, the more people understand. And this understanding is very important in addressing the oppressions and also the discriminations. And then transform, social transformation can eventually be achieved. Thank you so much, Dina. Um, that's a really interesting point that you bring up with respect to lived experience, because as some of you know, Dina and I have both worked in the area of domestic violence in Indonesia. And as you said, it's about as an ally using your privilege to create and support platforms where people with lived experiences can share their voices. And importantly, as Bo raised, not only on that specific part of their identity, but as people with all different facets and experiences and being able to share that in a really full and rich way. Um, Bo, would you be able to elaborate um, QIA's work and how it seeks to empower, or as Dina mentioned, what the relationship is between disempowerment and empowerment in terms of QIA's work? There we are. Um, so I guess to begin, I'll, I would just give maybe just a little background on what QIA actually is and how it functions. Um, so as I said before, QIA is a digital archi archiving project that started in the beginning of 2020. And the goal initially was about collecting materials from existing organizations. Um, in Indonesia, but since then it has grown to a much wider project on focusing on collecting any materials um, that reflect the experiences of queer Indonesia um, with a goal of collection, preservation and celebration. Um, although we have only started this year, we currently have a collection of about 2000 objects um, and that mostly consists of uh, gay, lesbian and trans magazines from the early 80s until um, the mid 2000s or the mid noughties, I should say, um, photos, newspaper clippings, um, digital archives of websites from the early 2000s and, and blogs. And our most, one of our most recent and now our biggest contribution was the entirety of a uh, community forum that was active from 2004 until um, two days ago. So we were able to digitally archive that entire experience. Um, so the project is volunteer run. So when I say that, I mean every single person involved in it is a volunteer. We have about 80 active volunteers that help us with uh, cataloging, um, collecting, describing our materials. Um, and the ultimate aim is to just have a giant digital repository that 
um, is accessible, functional, and hopefully exciting. Um, it's a huge project. Um, and so we know that for it to be sustainable, um, that it really has to be about um, building uh, a community around the archive and empowering those that um, are part of that community to, you know, to, to take on and eventually, um, you know, we hope to build a membership-based organization that um, will be able to bring this, this project into the future. Because um, Indonesia is facing a time when the lived experiences and narratives of queer peoples are being challenged, erased and delegitimized in the national collective memory, especially over the last 20 years. Um, and this project was to kind of focus on two big concerns. One is that there's many stories, people, organization, and movements that are highly vulnerable to being forgotten um, or erased through the loss of their material history. And then more slowly, and um, the community memory and history of those movements also as people get older. Um, and secondly, we felt that over the last 20 years that kind of this very active um, goal of erasure of this history um, had, had cut off new generations um, from being able to access the history of, of the movement and of the communities that they're a part of. Um, you know, it's for, for a, a younger queer person in Indonesia, it is quite difficult to get access to the history of the movement, um, especially in, um, in um, in language and the materials that do exist is obviously highly focused on the gay men's movement and to a lesser extent the the lesbian um, the lesbian movement and you know although transplant groups have been you know the most organized they they were organized the earliest have been the most active they have the the largest spread of organizations across the archipelago and have been working over a much longer hit, um, period of history. There's some of that movement is some of the least documented, so it is quite vulnerable. Um, so we hope that by giving people access to primary sources of materials, so you know materials that were made in the time by members of the community themselves, um, that we can help build a new generation of queer community members that can access this history and start you know, building creative projects, doing their own research based on their own access to these materials rather than always having to go through Western um, learning institutions or accessing the materials via Western scholars. Um, because even though there are some libraries that have amazing collections of these materials, they are quite often in, not in Indonesia and that people do need, you know, access to, you know, libraries in Australia, libraries in the Netherlands in order to even get access to these, you know, materials that were made in Indonesia by queer Indonesians. Um, and so that we hope that by providing this access, get, making these materials easily searchable um, and helping people see how they relate to the materials, we're able to empower the communities to kind of reinterpret his, these histories on their own terms 
and you know hopefully limit as much as possible the role of intermediary um, intermediaries in that process. We want to try and you know get contemporary queer communities as close as possible to to these materials. Um, and then you know just lastly, I'll just touch on it briefly because I mentioned it earlier. Our oral histories project. Um, which will be focusing on older members of the community. We hope that by, you know, giving, by recording these life histories and allowing, allowing them to speak on their own terms on issues that matter to them, that we also kind of are letting them set the agenda instead of kind of, you know, it's so easy to kind of always be influenced by, you know, what's going on in the US or what's going on in the Western world in terms of like, what are the queer priorities? What are the political priorities of these communities instead of kind of, you know, giving space for grassroots communities to actually set the agenda themselves? Because especially with funding models, how they are, so, and the way that um, funding flows to community groups, it's often, you know, Western donors that are always setting the agenda on what gets spoken about and what gets prioritised. A hundred percent, Boo. Thank you so much. A mammoth project. Mm -hmm. And what you just touched upon uh, really relates to Anissa's work when we're talking about um, aid and decolonization. And so someone asked, can we address how intersectionality and the discourses around intersectionality um, in Australia can be used in Indonesia and vice versa? So this is a question that's talking about that bilateral space. What I thought Anissa would um, speak on is, yes, for instance, Dina's project has funding from Australia and that is fantastic. Yes, we're always working with Indonesian advocates and you have a a collaborative and respectful relationship where you are uplifting one another. But it's not always that way. Those Adrian and QIA are examples of how to do it in terms of respectful collaborative relationships. But there are some problematic elements in the bilateral relationship when it comes to intersectionality and um, colonial or decolonial perspectives. Anissa, could you talk about your experiences and your research in the aid sector and the funding um, sector in the bilateral space and lessons learned? Uh, thanks so much, Valen. I just have to say first that I'm very grateful that I'm in this panel because it's so amazing to hear uh, what Dr. Dina is doing and what Bo is doing because it's very inspiring. And so just very far from um, both of your points on considering different identity, gender, sexuality, political forms for the queers in Indonesia, as well as the issue of visibility and invisibility of the disabled in Indonesia as well. And to return back to, to uh, Belvin's question, um, it's really uh, important how we have to point out first that there are blind spots. Um, and I have to say, that we have to admit that there are blind spots and to admit it that way is not to blame uh, one party and think that the other party would give solution because I don't think that will be productive and I've seen that happen many times, right? When we expect one to be the troublemaker and the, uh, the other to solve the problem. So um, in the current research that I'm doing with a very important research I'm doing with uh, 
I'm grateful to have access to uh, Rian Febrianto, who is an advocate and activist for youth and children's rights. Um, we've looked into a couple of things, but mainly maybe that what I can share, we published about how uh, the discourse of child marriage um, has been framed by many NGOs and um, of course, uh, well-meaning um, international organizations to minimize child marriage among girls and young women in Indonesia. Um, and although the problem, I'm not trying to say that it's an ambiguous problem, it's not, it's a problem. But the thing is that often, and it's related to decolonization, often people who receive um, aid, uh, the beneficiaries are often depicted, depicted a certain way that makes them seem to always be uh, vulnerable and uh, always to have lack uh, very little sense of agency. And in our paper, we saw that sometimes certain groups of people uh, with certain skin color are depicted to be problems. So. These are very important when we think about how we represent certain group of people as the problematic ones, right? And that's one element of it. The other element of it is that uh, if we want to do, or if we want to use the decolonial framework, perhaps we can get away from the victim versus heroes model and also to get away from the success versus failure model. And I've heard this a lot. I'm not, an, I'm not I don't work in advocacy, but uh, this is a part of my, my academic work. So what I'm interested in is in to shift the epistemological framework of the subjectivity of people who receive the benefits. And I heard the most important point made by Margianta, who's also a youth activist like Rian, who felt like his work became meaningless often when people demanded that the young people and the children that they work with to be good children or to be the ideal youth subjects in order to receive uh, helps or benefits. And I think when we can reimagine the possible ways of decolonizing uh, bilateral relation, we need to think about, uh, of course, practical ways, but also to seek bigger picture conversation and not to repeat the same problem. So I wanna be practical and this is my first attempt to be practical. I think first it's important to make sure that intersectionality or intersectional issues are not treated as checklist. And um, scholar uh, Jasbir Poir mentioned this very importantly, especially for, I mean, of course, Bono for queers, uh, not to use their identity, not to use the forms of expressions that they um, show to us as a way to sort of, you know, to fulfill a certain list that we prefer when we uh, give help or when we want to do intervention or to be even be in conversation with them. And hopefully it will be, never be treated as such. And then other than that, I think that it, it's important as well that the pressure that we, we, and by we, I mean people who work in advocacy often receive in funding and in reporting could be lifted in some ways. And I know it's impossible. <laughs> some people here will just be laughing about that. But I guess 
so that we don't repeat the same problem. Because the documents that Rian and I analyzed on child marriage were actually recent documents. They were published in 2020, 2017, 2018. And despite the important books on post-developmentalist project, you know, all of this pluralist perspective that a lot of scholars have um, encourage, we still see the same problem being repeated. So I think it's important and I'm sure the conversation here will be very fruitful in rethinking how we can think of intersectionality and decoloniality. Thank you so much, Anissa. And I think that when you work in this field for a long time, you start to realize, well, none of these problems are new and none of the discriminatory rhetoric is you know, new or unique, you know, men think they're funny, they're not, you know, if you're a homophobe, it's a, you're not original. So there is this kind of cyclical pattern where we're seeing the same problems again and again. Um, and we're just trying not to make the same mistakes. We're trying to do better than we did last time. And I also think something that's important to remember, someone said, what's best practice? This is a question in terms of intersectionality and how to be inclusive. And I think something that's important, and this is my opinion, is that we should acknowledge that we all have blind spots, that we're learning together, and we should acknowledge where the knowledge lies because we don't have all of the knowledge. There are communities that exist that have this knowledge. And so that, um, what you were saying in this also comes up in my work a lot. Women, particularly Muslim women, I work a lot in Aceh, they're always stereotyped in terms of aid as being victims. And if you actually look into it, there is a wealth of knowledge and resources and women's advocates advocating for themselves within and outside of Islamic frameworks. So we're not reinventing the wheel. We're not coming up with the answers uh, on the fly or by ourselves. We have to acknowledge where this knowledge already exists. So just um, to open the floor to any of you, what would your advice be in terms of best practice? What have you found helpful in terms of applying intersectionality in a real way and not just in a checklist kind of way in your work? Maybe I can start with that, Winnie. That's very interesting. I think uh, the point that were recently raised, uh, I think in my, my in both in both of my work on, on gender and also on people with disabilities, um, I, I'm very familiar with these uh, ideas of post-coloniality and, and, uh, and also how we need to be very careful and, and the, 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 the theme and uh, subject about agency. But I think I've always come to these reflections. Uh, when we talk about identity, we talk about knowledge, right? And so when we are talking about knowledge, this comes from the conversations, the interactions, exposure of an individual with their environment. And for example, in the case of Aceh with women, yes, for example, that there is often depiction that women are victims. Uh, in my book, I, which Winnie, I'm sure have already read it, uh, 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 that that women are not the victim. Uh, sorry, that women. Yes, I I would say they are the victims of the system of the structure. But women were able to find their agency because that 
because you know there is space that allows them to 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 use that space to voice their experience the, to voice their the the different oppressions discriminations that they have and and that that ideas or the voices that they made about the oppressions is because of that knowledge that they get from from interacting with the with the with their environment in that case for example it was during the post tsunami that you know all the indonesians uh, nationals ngos and also international ngos were flocked in aceh in banda aceh and with all the seminars with everywhere people organizing workshops you know you can see banners everywhere in the corner of banda aceh about gender equality and people are start talking about it people start wonder what is it they may not be agree at all with the idea of gender equality but i think individual have that ability to internalize uh, the norms and values uh, and they were able to sort of like filtering it which they think is uh, is uh, acceptable for them for them as an individual and as a group and so the same thing also with the issues around the rights of people with disabilities we have the universal principles of uh, uh, of UNCR that is that is UNCRPD same thing with uh, with gender equality CEDO and also with the children also there's a convention and and that convention is really uh, is is really the platform for everyone to start talking about you know about creating knowledge and and I think it, we have to be very careful as well uh, by not just saying that we have to be uh, mindful of you know you know of of the ideas or, or or your your culture being dominated by other culture, but I guess I think in every rights movement uh, is is going to be there the discourse the debate and the discussion will always be there, but I guess we need to always be be also be uh, uh, be be thoughtful that individual has the capacity to 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 filter the values that they think is appropriate for them you know with their identity uh, you know being a muslim being being achenis being people with disabilities being chinese indonesians you know being being uh, west sumatrans for example and and i think uh, i think i must say that uh, in terms of women's movement, for example, Indonesian women's movement have already demonstrated that capacity, you know, uh, women's organizations across Indonesia have, have that kind of ability, you know, they work with donors, but they were like able to say no, we are not, yes, yes, we are going to, to do that, but we are doing it in our own way. And that's because of the because of the ability and because of the space that they have and 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 the idea that we have with Idran is also to make sure that we are not going to 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 to, to put our own agenda but we only want to create that space and and, and that space um, that platform uh, we we are you know hopefully that that will be you know, because, you know, it, it's also very, very, we need to be very careful as well. We don't want to be seen as uh, 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 a practicing abelism, right? So we need to be very mindful of that as well. Uh, but 
probably to wrap up, I'm just going to say how grateful I am to be given the opportunity by Cindy because uh, this is exactly the opportunity that we would like to have that, you know, I don't know how many of you have been, uh, you know, um, having the exposure to learn about the, the, this, the various discriminations of people with disabilities. And so hopefully after this webinar, you have become more aware of the rights of people with disabilities and you start looking at your surroundings in your offices, for example, whether your employer has already employed people with disabilities, because that's exactly what the UNCRPD that Indonesia has ratified and also the national legislation have said. And, and that's again, that's the international platform. And I think uh, one way of, you know, contributing to that is by doing exactly, exactly that. So yeah. Sorry. Thank you Thank so you much, that. Dina. No, that was amazing. And I think you've indirectly answered the last question we had is, are we optimistic or pessimistic about the political climate in Australia? And I think by extension, uh, Indonesia or Australia with respect to gender, um, queer rights and decolonization, there is always work to do, but there is always work being done. And so I've found that, yes, you can get burnout. You can get compassion fatigue. You can get all of these different things where you think I'm tired and we're saying the same things over and over again, but you are creating space and we are making progress and things are getting better. And then sometimes they get a little bit worse, but you know, then they'll get better again. And so I think you can't be all or the other. We're not always optimistic. We're not always pessimistic. We're a healthy mix of both. And I just wanted to say, we have been incredibly ambitious in this panel. I'm very proud of all of us. Um, of course, this does not begin to encapsulate all of the other intersectional perspectives that you could possibly bring up. Um, we've touched on race, we've touched on class, we've touched on politics and religion and age, and it's, it's limitless in terms of where these discussions can go and I hope that we'll have opportunities to have more conversations like this in 2021 even in person inshallah but I wanted to say thank you so much to both Anissa and Dina for your time and for such a lovely conversation to round out 2020 really a highlight and if anyone um would like to ask any follow-up questions I'm sure you can all find both Anissa and Dina um online through their various organizations and continue to have these conversations. So thank you everyone. And I think um, someone just said, thank you, Kozindi. And um, thank you, Adjan, thank you, QIA. Thank you, University of Melbourne, Latrobe for um, lending us your scholars. And um, this will be recorded and it will be put up on Facebook. And so if anyone you know missed it and you think that they might benefit from being a part of this conversation, please let them know that they can be a part of the conversation by going to Cosindy's Facebook. And sampai jumpa. Terima kasih. Thanks everyone. <laughs> Thanks, Windy. Thanks, both. Thanks, Anissa. Thank you, Adina. Thanks.